0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I want you to turn to a passage we're all very familiar with. It's in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to take a little break from James because I want to explain something that we ran into in James, and that is the world system, Satan's world system, um, it's strange that when you look up a word in a dictionary, they usually have about 10 different definitions. Have you noticed that? And that's because a word's definition is determined by its context. The meaning of certain words, we can only tell what they are based on a context. If it's just, they just flash a word on a screen, you don't know what it means because you don't see it in a context. And so in, in James chapter 4, we saw... Something that seemed to contradict John three sixteen, which is the one verse that all of you know. John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life." And yet, in James chapter four verse four, he says, "Friendship with the world is enmity with God." So, how do you reconcile those things? Well, it's very simple. It's that the word "world" means two different things in those two verses. In fact, there's about four different meanings of the word world. It's just like uh, if, you're, if your son says to your 16-year-old son, says, I need you set a set of wheels. He's not talking about taking the tires off your car. He's using wheels to describe a car. And other times, uh, and so sometimes we get mixed up about these words in Scripture. They seem to be in contradiction to each other. So what I wanted to do was to turn to 1 John chapter 2 and see what John says in his old age. And you know that uh, he's, he's in his 90s now. And you know how it is. People in their 90s are much smarter than the rest of us. And so his wisdom comes through. And listen to what he says. This is, we're looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. John says, I am writing you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one, that is Satan himself. And then he says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. A lust is simply the strongest desire you have, it's epithumia, like we have epicenter, an epicenter. But epithumia just means the the overwhelming desire that you have right now, the overwhelming passion you have for something right now. What uh, Ezekiel said was that one of the dangers we have as followers of God is that we can take things in our life and we can begin to value them more than we we value God. And he said it's like taking an idol and putting it in your heart. So you have an idol in your heart that's more precious to you than the living God. And that can cause us real problems. So, when he says the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lasts forever, he's not saying this physical earth. In fact, the Bible teaches that this physical earth is going to be renewed and restored and it's going to last for eternity. Isn't that something? Can you imagine living in the world on this earth and nothing getting old? Nothing breaking down? That's what the Bible says. That God's going to restore the earth and all of his people are going to live on the earth in his presence in the future. But we got a lot of other things to go through before we get to that place. But what I wanted you to notice was this: this truth about Satan's world system. You know, living our lives in fellowship with God, with the God who is light, is one of the blessings of relationship with God. It's overwhelming. It's a blessing that is joy-producing, and life transforming the longer you walk with christ the more you change he changes your heart he gives you a heavenly perspective he opens your eyes to the glory of god in the face of christ and also in the people that he saves and so this whole thing of spiritual maturity or growing as a christian is really important in this section of first john this experience is described and explained and encouraged he wants us to grow he wants us to continue on this path of relationship with Jesus Christ so that the relationship with Christ begins to transform us. We are changed by it. It's a great, great blessing. But he also warns us about the hindrances that keep us from joy and transforming effects of having a relationship with Christ. You've, at some point in your life, you have, you have come to understand that you should stay away from certain people because they influence you. Right? Right? Or your children, let's say. Maybe you're more interested in what, what's uh, transforming your children or grandchildren. They're, they have some friends that's influencing them, and the effect of the relationship is they're moving further and further away from the reality of who God is. Well, this passage tells us the one person in your life, not, it's not just one, but one, the one person for sure that you know is transforming you is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your relationship with him. He is the one who brings great change to your life. And there are some identifiable marks of spiritual maturity. How do you know a person is maturing? When I was a kid and they talked about the world system, they talked about the world and and uh, not not being worldly or letting the world into the church and that kind of thing. You know what they were talking about? They were talking about all this stuff that you enjoy and have fun with because that's not, and that is not the world. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it says, don't become worldly. It's not going to shows or going to bowling alleys or having fun. It's really true that in some Christian circles, you know sin by the fact that it's fun. It's all that stuff that you enjoy. That's what sin is. No, that's not the truth. Sin is disobedience to the living God. That's what sin means. It means to disobey God's command. For example, he commands you to love one another the way that Christ has loved you. If I refuse to do that, if I find one of you so hard to get along with that I, I want to try to stay out of your way and out of your presence, that I'm not obeying the law of God, which is through Jesus Christ, we're to love one another the way Christ loved us. And so what we have to do is do what Jesus said. If a, if a, if a brother, somebody close to you in Christ, sins, don't ignore it. Rebuke him, which simply means to say, you know what you're doing right now and the attitude you're having? Maybe you're in the presence of somebody who begins to slander a brother or sister in Christ. Guess what? That's sin. When you start to put down a Christian in the presence of another Christian, that is sin. And so he says, when a brother sins, rebuke him. And when he repents, and that means he changes his mind and says, you know what? I don't want to live in disobedience to Christ. He says, then you forgive him. One of the things that we do in local churches is we don't tell people when we see sin in their life, because we think, oh, I, that's, that's not my place to tell him that lying is wrong. <laughs> yes, it is. God's called you to that, to, be, to speak the truth to each other, but in a loving way, not rejecting the person, but saying, you know what? Christ saved you and gave you the eternal life and the Holy Spirit, and he's called you to speak the truth and live the truth. And he's, he's told you to stop slandering one another because it grieves the Holy Spirit. If I use words, uh, whatever in my vocabulary they are, if I use words as weapons against people, to tear them down, it says that that grieves the Holy Spirit. And so what do I do when I catch myself doing that? I go, this is what I'm told to do. I go to the person and I say to them, I need your forgiveness. I ask you to forgive me because I've fallen into this trap and I know it's wrong. I've been disobedient to Christ. You see, uh, this is how we grow as Christians. We grow as Christians as we grow in our relationship with Christ and we begin to be affected by him. This is what happened to the disciples. You want to see the perfect discipleship context? Look at the life of Jesus with his disciples. And they saw him. They followed him and they saw the way he treated people. They saw the way that he talked to people. They saw the way that he did not withhold love from people just because they weren't his kind of people. He loved people. He showed love to them by speaking truth to them in love. And so in this context here, what John does, he tells us the marks of spiritual maturity in verses 12 through 14. And notice how each category that's, that's described here, in beginning in verse 12, for I am writing to you little children. That's the first category, little children. Because your sins have been forgiven, you for His name's sake. That's the, that's the basic level of every Christian. We're children. In fact, it's the word for little children. We're like babes, and our sins have been forgiven. That's what we all have in common. Our sins have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him. And then He says, uh, the second category that He talks about are the fathers. And he's talking about they are examples to follow. That's what we're told in Hebrews 13. We should follow the example of those who have been in the faith longer than us and are walking with Christ. And he says, I'm speaking to you. I'm writing to your fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one that John says is from the beginning. And he says here, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. Who has been from the beginning. That is spiritual maturity. This is the person who's been in the faith long enough that they actually love Christ above all things. They know that that is exactly where my love ought to be. It ought to be on the Lord Jesus Christ, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men. These These are those who've been in the faith a while, and they've gone through the war. They've gone through the battle with Satan and standing against sin and his temptation to be unfaithful to Christ. He says, I've been writing to you to you young men, because you, are over, you have overcome the evil one, that is Satan himself. Because Satan tries to capture your heart. He wants to build in your heart a hatred for fellow believers. He wants to, you to down, to devalue what it means to know Christ. This is what Satan wants to do. And he says, these men have overcome, these believers, these are probably men and women, but he's talking about the fact they have grown in the faith to where they have overcome the evil one. They don't believe his lies anymore. They don't believe his deceptions anymore. And he says, I've written to you children because you know the Father. That's the basic level, you see. That's the beginning of the Christian life. We come to know the Father. We come to know him as Father. We relate to him as Father because of what Christ has done. Then he goes on, he says, I have written to you fathers. He's going through the second cycle. I've written to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's the highest That's our goal. We want to come to know Jesus Christ. We want to come to know him personally, intimately, like our closest friend. And he says, because you know him, who has been from the beginning, I have written to you young men because you are strong. You've actually stood against satanic attack and you've overcome temptation. If you're ever tempted to speak down to a fellow believer or to to slander them or, or to get in their face, See, some people think that's what reproof is. It's not. Reproof is simply telling the truth in a loving way. You know, I love you, and I love you too much to keep silent about some pattern in your life. You keep lying over and over and over again about this one thing because you're trying to cover yourself. And by doing that, you're sinning. And the solution is simple. Jesus died for your sins. So you confess your sins, and he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then he says, uh, he says to these young men, you've overcome and become strong and the word of God abides in you. So that's a sign of maturity. That's one of the, the, the first signs of maturity as you're growing in the Christian life. The word of God abides in you. What does that mean that you memorize scripture? Well, it certainly would include that, but it's more than that. It's things that are in your heart. They affect your heart. Your heart has been set free by the word of God. And so he says, you, you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 15, he says, do not love the world. Now, in this context, the world he's talking about is the satanic world system. The word world that's translated world in the Greek is cosmos. And I only really say that because all you ladies know what's related to that, right? Cosmos, it means order. Cosmetics. Cosmetics are used to put your face in order, right? So the shadows are just right, and it changes the shape of your face and the way it looks. So you have what cosmetics are to put cosmos, turn cosmos, or turn chaos into cosmos. You're turning, you're, you're turning something that doesn't look like it's right into something that looks beautiful. And by the way, you, you've all done a great job. which reminds me that we need to pray for Joan for this. And I say it reminds me because if you've seen the picture of her that she fell the other day and her face is incredibly affected by it and swollen and red and everything else. And she's a widow. Uh, she lives by herself and uh, she needs help. She needs to know that uh, you care for her and that whatever kind of help she needs, you want to be someone who's gonna, God's going to use to help her. So please give her a call when you can this week and just chat with her and see how she's doing and pray for her. She desperately needs God to do something wonderful in her life, I'm telling you. You know, she's had this weakness for a while that she can barely walk, and yet she is just determined to keep on working, and she's been functioning as her secretary for 20 years. And so she does not want to give that up. And uh, and yet she has grown so weak, and she has so many problems she's dealing with. So I want to take a moment and just pray for her as, a, as her church family. Our Father, we're thankful for your loving kindness towards us. We were weak when you found us. We were helpless. And you saved us. And you gave us life. You gave us the spirit. You gave us a family. You gave us a whole new identity. And we have been blessed so richly by our relationship with you. And I pray for our sister Joan that you would help her in this time of weakness Uh, Father, I just pray that you would lift her up and give her strength. I pray that you would heal her from this condition that she has that I don't even know. She doesn't know what's caused it. And so we pray that you would help her and strengthen her and enable her to do what you have called her to do, Father. We also pray that you would heal this wound that she has. And God, we just pray that you would bring her through this. I pray that all of her friends would be driven to give her a call, visit her, touch bases with her, and, and encourage her. She needs your help, Father, and I know that help's going to come through your, your children, so we pray that you would work in a supernatural way, and we'll give you praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. So this progress in the Christian life is something that can be seen. You can see people as they grow. Basically, what he tells us is, at the beginning, your sins are forgiven, and you have come to know the Father as Father. And you talk to him as father. It's amazing how it is when a person comes to faith in Christ and automatically, all of a sudden, they feel compelled to speak to the father. They feel compelled to speak to God the father and to speak to him as a, as a father. And the Bible tells us we can say Abba, father, which means dear father or daddy. We, we know that he is for us. And so that's the first thing that happens in the Christian life is coming to know that you've been forgiven and you have a relationship with God and you turn to him. So it begins with sins forgiven and knowing the Father. That's the first step in Christian maturity. Then it proceeds with spiritual strength, like these young men that come comes through spiritual warfare. You can't grow unless you go through spiritual warfare. It's only as you fight this battle of living the Christian life with all these temptations to abandon it and find your own way and figure out your own cure for whatever you're facing instead of trusting in him. And so the way that we proceed in the Christian life is by trusting Christ, by going to battle with the armor of the word of God. We go to battle knowing that God is true and that he's going to be faithful to his promises to us. If you remember what Jesus said in, in public about his own son, this is what he said in public. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You could tell the father loved the son and he proclaimed it and people heard him say these words if you'd have been there that would have been amazing wouldn't it to hear the voice of god coming from heaven and speaking to a people who were gathered and they saw him baptized and then another time when he was with his disciples on the mount of transfiguration and god speaks out of heaven and they heard his voice now, I don't think anybody would deny that that's exactly what the text says. That God spoke from heaven and the people who he was speaking to heard his voice, physically heard his voice. God can do that. But what he's done for you is something so much better as he has given you a book, a revelation. It's made up of, It's like a library of 66 books. And you have the very word of God here. This is where God speaks clearly about himself and about you and about me and about life as a Christian. And about the devil and about his kingdom and how he wants to deceive you. And how he wants to uh, capture your heart and mind. Now, there are hindrances to spiritual maturity. It isn't a smooth road. It's not like, well, you will never find any... Uh, you know, I think that sometimes what, what happens to us, I know I've done this before. I get to thinking that God's job in the lives of his children is to make things go smoothly. He's supposed to remove all the rough spots so that we don't have to go through difficult things. How many of you used to believe that? It used to to seem like it was true, wasn't it, until you lived a little bit of life and then you discovered, no, that God allows your trials to be a part of His instruments in bringing you to maturity in Christ. That you would come to know Christ better than you know Him now. And until you become perfect, you're always going to have trials. Because as best I know, there's nobody in this room who is just like Jesus. And so there's still, there's still room for growth, isn't there? And so God's going to use trials as a part of that process. He's going to take you through times where you have to trust him completely. Because he's the only one who can deal with the need that you see in the road ahead. It's Christ and Christ alone. Who can possibly take you through the thing that you fear the most? The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And notice these hindrances in verses 15 through 17, what he says. He says, stop loving the world. That's the implication of that phrase. Stop loving the world. Stop doing what you're doing right now as loving the world. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now stop and think about this. In John three sixteen, it says that God loved the world so much he sent his son into the world so that they could be saved. So why is he saying, you should not love the world because he's talking about a different, it's using the word in a different way. He's talking about Satan's world system. And all that means is Satan has a system. He has a system, a way of convincing people of the lie that he wants them to believe. And then he tells you exactly what they are. He says all that's in the world. And now he mentions these things that make up Satan's world system. The first is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is just a way of describing the most profound passions and desires I have that comes from my fallen nature. And you know what it is? It's selfishness. I want my way, and I want it right now. I want what I desire. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about the lust of the flesh. You remember what he said to Adam and Eve? When he said to them, uh, God told you you couldn't eat of all the trees in the garden. God had created them, put them in the Garden of Eden. And Satan says to Eve, God said that God told you that you couldn't eat of all the trees. And he was going to tell them something different. And she says, no, he didn't tell us all the trees. He just said we couldn't eat of or even touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason it's called that is because that one act of disobedience, the only command that God gave to Adam and Eve was not to eat of this one tree. That was it. He created them perfect In his own image, and he tells them, you have everything here is for you, but do not eat of this one tree. It was the one act of disobedience that they could perform. And Satan convinces them, the reason that God doesn't want you to eat of this tree is because you'll be just like God. You'll be able to judge good and evil. And so Eve, it looked so attractive to her. And so she ate of the tree, and her husband followed her, and the human race was plunged into this condition of alienation from God. Because we disobeyed in the person of Adam and Eve. And so he says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is is the drive to uh, satisfy your longings, what you desire, what's what's attractive to you. Uh, It's amazing how certain things become really attractive, isn't it? You start really getting yourself involved in something that looks so attractive to you. I started mentioning some cars, but I'm sure people here own these cars, and I don't want you to think that, I think it's worldly for you to own that car. But there are things that just become so attractive to us as we watch TV, and these images come up, and it gets our attention. That's the lust of the eyes. That is, it's, it, Satan uses this way of producing in you an affection for something instead of God. Some way that, like in Ezekiel, you can replace a love for God with something else. I used to love God, but now I love BMW motorcycles. See, it's that kind of thing. And then he says this. He says these things, he says these first, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life is simply an expression that means me coming to be totally delighted with the fact that I have everything I need and want. I'm totally independent of needing anything from anybody. I don't have to trust anybody to give me anything because I have everything I need. I had one guy tell me, you have to have a million dollars to retire. Then I heard another guy say, you have to have five million dollars to retire. I guess that means if you, if you have really high standards, it may be five million that you need. I'm not sure what the deal is with that. Um, but he says, these are not from the Father. They're from the world. And then he didn't get this. He says this. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. All those things that seem like if I just had that, if I just had that, I would have everything I need. Sometimes it's very simple. A bicycle. A little kid says, if I just had that bicycle, I'd have everything I need. But most of us want something much bigger and much more expensive. Then he says this, Then this is what John says. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. Now, what started the last hour was the coming of Jesus. Jesus came into the world to fulfill the prophecies concerning him in the Old Testament. In the last day, the Old Testament said, this is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened when Christ came. He was born in the city that was prophesied he would be born in hundreds of years before he was born. He fulfilled all of the promises of Messiah. So the last hour began. And that's why John and every other New Testament writer says we're in the last hour. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. You think we're in the last hour today? Absolutely. And it's not because Jesus is coming next week. I don't know if he is or not. There are some people who know. You can buy their book. (laughs) The best thing to do is buy the one that said he was coming ten years ago, because then you'll already know it's a bunch of baloney from the very beginning. But it's the last hour because Christ has come. And we're living in this last hour. We're living in an hour in which a man who puts his faith in Christ can be right with God. A person who rests their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was buried and rose again, can be right with God. Absolutely right. That's what the word justification means. It means that God has declared you to be absolutely right with him. He accepts you. He embraces you. You're his child. Justified. And so we're living in this hour in which people can be right with God. But he said many antichrists have gone out into the world to tell people lies. And they're all being, in, they're all being uh, motivated by the same person. Satan himself, who has created a system in which he wants to get you to latch on to a fantasy and put it in your heart that it becomes an idol of the heart rather than loving God. And, and then John says this, they went out from us, those who are turned against Christ, they went out from us because they were not really of us. You can fake it, you know, you can pretend to be a believer and become a part of a community of faith. And if you keep on acting like they want you to act, they'll keep on believing that you are a member of the body of Christ. But he says, well, but what happened was they couldn't stand it any longer. They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Now, what, what the reason for that is that we need to understand as Christians as followers of Christ, that the only basis, the only basis of our being right with God is faith in Jesus Christ, what he has done. We, took, we are going to take communion in a few minutes. We're going to take a little piece of bread and a cup. And it's to remind us of the fact that we have put faith in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. And the, the little loaf represents the fact that he became one of us. He became a human being. The eternal Son of God became a human being. Why? So that he could rescue us from our alienation from the living God. And then we're going to take a cup. And that cup represents his blood, which is the basis of the new covenant. Now blood, that sounds kind of, uh, I don't want to hear about blood. There were, I remember there was a movement a long time ago when I was a kid to take all the blood songs out of the songbook. Because blood, who wants to talk about blood? Well, let me explain to you what blood is in the Bible. Blood is the violent death of a victim who is standing in the place of a person who is trusting God. In the Old Testament, the blood, there was gallons upon hundreds and millions of gallons of blood shed in the sacrificial system. But it was all to picture the ultimate sacrifice was the Lord, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. When he died... When he refused to disobey God, refused to turn from God and do what men wanted him to do, he was executed. His blood was shed. They convicted him and hung him on a cross, and his blood was spilt. And so the, the reason we talk about blood is it's the payment for our sins. It's the reason that we can be right with God is because Jesus Christ has taken our place and died in our place and offered up an offering, that is himself, as payment in full for our alienation and sin. And so that's why we say, Jesus said that when we take the cup, we need to understand, this is the new covenant in my blood. See, a covenant always included shedding of blood. This, this, is, um, this is the way it worked. In a covenant, when you made a covenant with someone, I get this, you've been to weddings before, right? And people, a couple enters into covenant with each other. That's what's going on. They're entering into a covenant. But here's the nice part about it, is we don't require you to shed any blood. You don't have to shed any blood because it was the blood of Jesus who he he died for us. He paid the penalty for a broken covenant because we have broken the covenant over and over again. And so Christ, his blood was shed in our place so that what he paid for, I received by faith, simply believing in him, the Savior of the world. Uh, Getting saved, faith, isn't just believing that certain things are true. Faith is putting my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because I have come to believe that it's true that he is the eternal Son of God who came into the world to pay the penalty for my sins so that I could be saved and restored to relationship with the living God. Because I came to believe that he had that ability, you know what I did? When I was 14 years old, I told Christ I trusted him as my Savior. And I did it publicly. In fact, it was in a building right down here in town, in Oakley, the Church of God. That's where I got baptized. And I can remember I had to say this with my own lips. I have put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believed on him. And he saved me as a result of that. It wasn't because I knew very much. I didn't. If you would have told me, so where do you find the gospel in the Bible? Where can you show me a text that says, that the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for your sins and he was buried and rose again. I didn't know. I know now. First Corinthians 15. It tells you that's what the gospel is. It's the good news that Jesus has come into the world so that you could be saved. And he gave his life. And he was raised from the dead. And he ascended back to the Father. And he represents us right now. So that every time I pray... I pray in Jesus' name because he's my entree into the presence of God. It's because of my faith in him. It has nothing to do with my works or my efforts. It has to do with what Christ has done for me. And so that's why we take that cup. It's for us to declare to the whole world, oh yes, I'm resting my faith in Christ the Savior who died for my sins. I am resting my faith in him. And that's how I know I'm right with God. Not because I I I was in court all week, and um, so you know you have to there. I was I had to serve as a juror. And so this what I had to do is answer these questions before the whole group. They give you a microphone, and first question: What's your occupation and how long have you been doing it? I'm a pastor, and I've been doing it for forty years. The judge says, "What'd you do before that?" <laughs> and the, the 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 prosecuting attorney said. I couldn't figure out why she asked you that question. If you've been doing this for 40 years, why would she want to know what you were doing before? And so he asked me, and I said, well, before I was a preacher, I sold used cars. And it was a great transition. And then they turned me down as a juror. And I didn't know if it was the used cars or Jesus. I wasn't sure. But, uh, I told the kid in the in the jury sitting up on the seat, for, for, was, he was selected as a juror. I told him afterwards, I said, because he's the one who started. He busted out laughing when I said I sold used cars. That's how I got through college. It's how I clothed my children and my, and I, it's how I put food on the table. So it was a gift from God. It was glorious. I remember ta- ta- witnessing to a guy in my office trying to sell him a car. And he said, and so I started sharing the gospel with him. And he says, well, what do you mean? He said, said, uh, I said, well, in order to go to heaven and be in the presence of God, you have to be perfect. And he said, you think you're perfect? (laughs) I said, said, yes. And here's how. It's because of my association with Jesus Christ. Because I put faith in Christ. His righteousness became my righteousness. That's why when you read the New Testament, it talks about us being clothed in his righteousness because who he was became applicable to me. God can save anybody, even used car salesmen. He can save you simply by faith in Christ, by putting your faith in Christ as one who is qualified to save you and bring you to forgiveness of sins and unite you to the living God. Isn't that good news? That's good news. It's good news for everybody who believed it. Because we experience all the benefits of it. And that's what John is talking about. When he talks about the lust of the flesh, he says, Satan is trying to get you to drive your life through the lust of the flesh. You remember that ad? I think it was a beer ad, a beer commercial. And the, the theme phrase, I might have said this last week. The theme phrase for it was, you only go around once in life, get all the gusto you can. You remember that ad? Did any of you respond to it? (laughs) Well, I don't remember the name of the beer, but I can tell you this. They took a word. The word gusto is the Latin word for lust. That's what it is. That's what it means. You only go around once in life, so fulfill all the lust you can. And that's Satan's message. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to be satisfied with fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And for us, in my age category, all of you here that are my age category, the, lust of the, the boastful pride of life is, I have everything I need. You know, I've got this stuff stored. I mean, it's hard to get to, but you go in my barn, I've got, I've got everything you could ever imagine. I'm set. That's what, that's what the boastful pride of life is. You've got 37 cars in your, your barn. And that won't do it. And see, God God doesn't want you to be satisfied with that. He wants you to be satisfied with one thing. The Lord Jesus Christ, who took your place, stood in your place, suffered the penalty that was due you because of his love for you. Because he wanted you to enter into his family. He wanted you to know the Father the way he knows the Father. If you, if you read the Gospels, you hear Jesus say it over and over again. I came to do the will of my father. That's why I'm here. You know why he was willing to die for you? Because he loved his father so much. And his father wanted this son to have a multitude of brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so he died to save us. So this world, satanic world system, I'm going to go back to James next week, but this satanic world system is simply Satan's way of motivating you to be satisfied with something less than God, less than his provision of salvation. There's something so much better. As when I was a kid and we were always told, you know, warned about the world. The world was, I thought that what they were saying was, anything that people have fun doing in the world, that's the stuff you've got to keep out of your life. Don't go to shows. Couldn't even go to a bowling alley. Don't do anything that has, that will, it will be fun. That's not the world. The world that we need to be careful of is the world, the system that Satan has created to keep you happy without God to keep you satisfied without the only way that you could ever receive life and life eternal, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's a liar, and he's a deceiver, and he wants to keep you in that condition for the rest of your life, and then you'll be in that condition for all eternity, separated from the living God. But I want to tell you there's really good news. The good news is all about Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, you're not familiar with the Bible, if if you Take your Bible and turn to to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to do it now, but that Bible doesn't look like it would even open up. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, it gives you the gospel. The good news. That's all gospel means. just means good news. Here's the good news to you. The good news is Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, which proved he was dead. He was put into a tomb. And then he was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, and he was seen by over 500 people at once. In other words, this is the testimony of eyewitnesses, that Jesus really did die for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. And the resurrection is important because what it is, it's God's affirmation that what Jesus died for has been accomplished. He has accomplished this incredible, amazing work of providing salvation for all who would believe on him. And if you put your trust in Christ, he'll come to live within you, and he will re- reunite you to the living God, his Father, and you'll know him for all eternity, and you'll be with him for all eternity. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we could, we could come together and uh, hear your word and sing praises to you. Thank you for these songs. Thank you, Father, for us being able to lift up our voices in praise and adoration of the true and living God. Thank you for bringing us into the family. We all feel like we don't deserve it, but we've been given this gift, and we relish the gift, and we thank you for it. So we pray as we come to the Lord's table, our hearts would be moved by the reality of what Christ has done as we remember this glorious work of Jesus Christ in dying for us and giving us life indeed. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.